Good evening, guys. We're in chapter two of the book of Ezra. We'll probably do two and three tonight. Remember, only a remnant decided to go back to Jerusalem. And God, the only reason that remnant really went back is the stirring of God's heart. And the Spirit uses the same word when it says about uh, Cyrus. God stirred the heart of Cyrus, that he would have an attachment to Israel. And remember, this is no picnic. They're journeying 900 miles. It took them four to five months to travel through the desert to get to a ruined city. The fence, the walls have been broken down. The altar has been broken down. The temple has been broken down. And they will work to rebuild that. And a vast majority, we have to remember, stayed back. Uh, One-fourth of the people went, and the rest of the uh, Israelites stayed behind. We talked a little about Zerubbabel because he's going to be the main character of the first five or six chapters, him and uh, Jeshua. Uh, Zerubbabel, he was born in, Beth, in uh, Babylon. His name means uh, governor. He's the governor there. And he had never seen the temple. He was born in Babylon. His Babylonian name is Shezbazar, which means offspring of Babel. This man goes with a group of Israelites all the way to Jerusalem. It's a spiritual decision they made because they had settled down in Babylon. Seventy years they were captive there. They had built houses and had paid for land, and some of them even had servants, so they were doing very well. It was almost like they were in a lethargy uh, moment or just a lukewarm behavior, but it was some that the Lord stirred their hearts. And that's the only way we can be saved. The Lord stirs our hearts. We will never go to him on our own. And that's what God wants to show us. This is, this is really a book of sovereignty. And you will see God's working in his people. But it's also a book of uh, restoration. We'll see that also going on in here. The, the second thing I want to say about him is they always, it's the church, it's a picture of the church today. When the church comes back to the word of God and the blood of Jesus Christ, to redemption and to atonement, that's when we're in the center of the Lord's will. We get back to the cross of Jesus Christ and the power of his word. His word is powerful. It's living. And there's something about when we use the word to be the center of what we do at church. It also breeds restoration. Colossians 3.16 tells us, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. And so we'll start off in, uh, I'll give a little background to this. Chapter 1, verses 7 through 11 says this, King Cyrus also brought out the articles of the house of the Lord. He goes into the temple where he had stored them, brings them out because they're leaving, which Nebuchadnezzar had taken from Jerusalem and put in the temple of his gods. And Cyrus, king of Persia, brought them out by the hand of Midradath, the treasurer, and counted them out to Shezbazar, the prince of Judah. This is the number of them, 30 gold platters, 1,000 silver platters, 29 knives. This has been 70 years 
all of this stuff that was in the tabernacle, in the temple, they have taken back and they haven't been used. We talked about the seven knives that was used to cut the animal's throat, never saw any blood on them. And then it says, and 10 silver basins of a similar kind and 1,000 other articles. Verse 11, all the articles of gold and silver were 5,400. God is a meticulous bookkeeper. All these Shezbazar took with the captives who were brought from Babylon to Jerusalem. We're going to look at chapter 2. And the only reason I'm just going to get a a few verses from chapter 2, I said last week that if God is that meticulous over counting, he knows the number of knives, he knows the number of basins that the blood would fall into, he knows all those things, how much more the souls of his, of his people. It says, now these are the people of the province who came back from captivity, of those who had been carried away, whom Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, had carried away to Babylon, and who returned to Jerusalem and Judah, everyone to his own city. Those who came with Zerubbabel were Jeshua, Nehemiah, Sariah, Reliah, Mordecai, not the Mordecai of Esther, Bilshan, Mispar, Bigvi, Rehom, and Bana, the number of the men of the people of Israel. Now, look down at verse 41. And I think the only reason I picked verse 41 out of the rest of the verses in, in this chapter, when I saw at the movie... Uh, Paul Allen, what was the movie we went to see? The Chosen. And it amazed me when they had some of Asaph men's and the choir there. They said, we've got a new song for you, King. And he says, okay, let's hear it. And they know with no instruments, they proceeded to tell the, the history of Israel when they came through the waters of, of the Red Sea and they didn't, they didn't have an instrument. They hummed and they chanted. And after they finished, I guess it was King David, he was just blown away by it. So we know that the Israelites love music. So God, he loves music. It says in verse 41, the singers, the sons, the sons of Asaph, 128, the sons of the gatekeepers, the sons of Shalom, the sons of Adar, the sons of Talmon, the sons of Akub, the sons of Hatita and the sons of Shobai, 139 in all. Now skip down to verse 61. And of the sons of the priest, the sons of Habiah, the sons of Kos, and the sons of Barsali. The only reason I got Barsali, I remembered him when David was crossing the river and Barsali, everybody was against David at this time. You remember uh, I think his name was Shemai, was throwing dirt on him and everything and saying, you throwing rocks at him. But Barsali comes out and he says, and David says, you want to come with me? And, and he says, no, I'm too old. But he honored David and the Lord honors him right here. It says, Cos and the sons of Barsali, who took a wife of the daughters of Barsali, the Gileadite, and was called by their name. And this is at 2 Samuel 19, 31 through 36. And Barsali, this is what happened. The Gileadite came down from Rogelum and went across the Jordan with the king to escort him across the Jordan. That's when he was leaving. Now, Barsali was a very aged man, 80 years old. 
If my mama's watching, happy birthday, she's 88 today. Can you believe that? 88 and still acts like a 68-year-old woman. <laughs> but you're not, mama. And he had provided the king with supplies while he stayed at Mahanium, for he was a very rich man, Barsali was. And the king said to Barsali, come across with me, and I will provide for you while you are with me in Jerusalem. But Barsali said to the king, how long have I to live that I should go up with the king to Jerusalem? I am today 80 years old. Can I discern between the good and bad? Can your servants taste what I eat or what I drink? Can I hear any longer the voice of singing men and singing women? Why then should your servant be a, be a further burden to my Lord, the king? Your servant will go a little way across the Jordan with the king. And why should the king repay me with such a reward? David didn't get a chance to repay him, but his line, his lineage, that's why I think the Lord put him in here. Whenever we walk with the Lord and live a godly life, we may not ever see it in our families, but it's there, and God smiles on that, and, and he shows favor to what you've did with your family. Chapter 3, and remember, we're following the record of Ezra, of the repatriation of Judah and Jerusalem and Israel, those who had been carried away, certainly from Samaria with the Assyrians when they took them away, but also uh, from Babylon. God now He's going to fulfill his word like he always will. His word had been to Cyrus, given the command, the king of Persia, that Jews should return to Judah and Israel and rebuild the temple. And he's telling them that God, the God of heaven, had commanded him to rebuild the temple. Ezra, like I said, it's about the sovereignty of God, but more than that, it's about restoration, restoration of a, of a people, restoration of, of, a, of, of, of individuals. This is what it, it takes to come back to God. So these are interesting steps we find here in regards to restoration. They are important for all of us. In the life, while we're living this world, we are susceptible to backsliding, I don't care how good you say you think you can walk with the Lord. If you don't, praise the Lord. But God knows. When he saves us, he already knows the story, what's going to be a chink in our armor, what's going to be. But the, the question is, the Lord has a wide, fervent door that we can always walk back through. And so in Ezra, we can make a lot of applications in our lives. I think they're important to the church in America how do we come back to the God of the covenant? And that's what we're going to find through these, through these chapters here. How do I get back? We have to remember God says in Revelations 2.5, Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent and do the first works. So Israel is coming back. They've remembered from where they have fallen, and they are headed back to Jerusalem, right where the temple was. And remember, this is a 900-mile journey. Only close to 5,000 people came back. And so that's less than a third that's remained. And once again, the only reason they remained, they had become comfortable. They had become comfortable with their house and with their servants and with their prosperity. 
And you know, that's always. It's good to prosper in this life, but we have to remember the one who gives us to, make, to be prosperous. And if we can't ha- handle prosperity well, well, God knows, so he won't give it to us. Anything that'll keep our eyes away from God, we don't need. And that's what he's saying here. So these people are returning, religious people. They have a religious conviction. God has stirred them up. And that's why they have returned. Chapter one, verse, uh, chapter three, verse one says, and when the seventh month had come and the children of Israel were in the cities, the people gathered together as one man to Jerusalem. Then Joshua, the son of Josedach, and his brethren, the priests, and Zerubbabel, the son of Shetiel, and his brethren arose and built the altar of God. They've made it back to the land to offer burnt offerings on it as it is written in the law. And notice they're not doing this any way they want to. They're doing it as Moses has required. That's why the Lord blesses it. His blessing is in the word. So it says, the law of Moses, the man of God. So our two main characters in the first six chapters, I told you, is Joshua, the son of Zozadak, and Zerubbabel. Joshua is from the line of Aaron. He is the high priest. And Zerubbabel is David's, he, he comes from David lineage. He has royal blood in his veins. And, and, and he's a civil leader. And like I said, these two take up the first six chapters. When we get to chapter 7, Ezra is recorded in the text, and this is the second return here. These are two main characters. It tells us in verse 1, and when the seventh month, that's an important month, had come, and the children of Israel were in the cities, the people gathered together as one man to Jerusalem. Verse 2, the sons of Josedat. Now, they've been in the land by this time. We don't know how long, probably two to three months. By this time, they're getting settled. Now, they all come up to Jerusalem, and it says they gather together as one man to Jerusalem. They come back. They don't come back to prosper once again or for money. They come back with all kinds of questions and uncertainties, but they come back because they want it to be back in Jerusalem. They have a heritage. They have a a natural heritage. They have a spiritual heritage, and they want that heritage more than they want to prosper in Babylon. It says they gathered together as one man, and they had to be in unity. They are unified in this. And it reminds me of Psalms 133, where it says, Behold, how good and how pleasant it is for brethren to dwell together in unity. That's a church, especially we should have unity in church. Jesus, what Paul writing says, we are unified. It's there for us. And we shouldn't buck being unified. We should be in unity. And they come back on the seventh month. The first day of the seventh month, you have the Feast of Trumpets, Rosh Hashanah. The 10th day of that same month, you have Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement. And then from 15th to the 21st, you have the Feast of Tabernacles. Of any of the months they could have came back, they come back to a spiritual month. God is trying to get them, hey, you are a special group of people. It was your sins and your disobedience 
that led you to this 70-year captivity. But I might cast you off, but I don't cast you away. God disciplines those he loves, and that's what he's doing here. They had dreamed of this. They, a lot of them hadn't been through any of these feasts, but they come, and they come in the month of the month of these rich feasts. It says, the people gathered together as one man to Jerusalem. Many see in Jerusalem for the first time. Walls are torn down. Altar is broken. Everything is in shambles there. And they still came. That's amazing. It says in verse 2, Then Joshua, the son of Josedat, he's of Aaron's line, and his brethren, the priests, and Zerubbabel, the civil leader, the son of Shittiel, and his brethren arose and built the altar of the God of Israel. Now, did, he, did they build the altar with iron and steel? No, they did not. Remember what was required? Rocks. And if they had to do any kind of physical work on them, you, you, you just got another rock and you chiseled that rock on it. So they built this altar. Verse 3 says, though fear had come upon them because of the people of those countries, they set the altar on its basis and they offered burnt offerings on it to the Lord. It's been 50 years since they built an altar, since they've been around an altar, since they, most of these people has, has never offered a sacrifice. I believe they're just standing there. They have never seen a sacrifice before. They have no walls. You know, people like to say about Christianity, and they're right, but they try to say it as a slant. I don't want to serve that bloody religion. Life is in the blood, and it took Jesus' blood to redeem us so it's special. They have no walls. They have no protection, no security except the altar. And they understand what needs to be made right. We need to come back and then the shedding of blood, the altar, before anything else can be made right. The first thing is the shedding of blood. If somebody backslides and goes away from the Lord for a while, somebody who's are in compromise or goes into sin, the problem why they hap it happened in the first place was that something was wrong in their relationship with the Lord. They had a problem with Jesus somewhere. You can blame church. That's the first thing people do. They blame church. And then they like to blame other things. But it's the main thing is they're blaming Jesus for something. Something was broken down between them and Jesus. And the hardest thing as a Christian is, when you backslide, and I'm not talking about uh, those who are uh, before they get saved. I'm, this book is about restoration. And when you backslid, and David, you've heard this before, you sin against light. And that just brings condemnation from the devil on you more and more. You knew better, but you did it anyway. But God, he's made room for forgiveness there's no other place to come. It's back to the cross of Christ. That's where we were first proclaimed righteous and holy. And the work of Christ on the cross is complete and it's enough. It covers, and I love this, it covers the ages, just not my life. People behind me, the people before me, that's what the blood of Jesus Christ does. It covered your sin, the whole sin issue 
in your life, not just your sins. There's a covenant. I talked about this last Sunday. There's a covenant. There's a greater, and it's greater than the old covenant we live under today. And they're looking to, and for anyone who wants to come back to the Lord, the first thing you come back to is the altar. The first place is the cross for us to where the shedding of blood is. And you realize that's where you love Jesus, why you loved him in the first place. When no one else would forgive you, when you thought you had struck out and nobody else wanted to give you a chance, you came to Jesus and he, he had his arms wide open and it blew your mind. And the Bible says who he forgives the most is the one who loves the most. Now, I don't prescribe backsliding, but the backslider or the prodigal, truth be told, if they are genuine when they come back, they stand a chance of being in a much deeper love relationship with the Lord when they come back to the altar. And here they are surrounded. We have to remember, they're surrounded by every enemy. While nothing is built, no walls have been built, no fence have been built, it's just the altar that's standing there, surrounded by everyone who would accuse them, surrounded by everybody that would tear them down, surrounded by everybody who would say, what are you doing back at church? You don't have a right to be here anymore. What do you, who do you think you are? There's no walls, there's no temple, and there's no church. But what there is, and that's why they built it first, they built an altar. And that's the first thing they built. Verse three tells us, though fear had come upon them because of the people of those countries, they set the altar on its bases and they offered burnt offerings on it, offerings of consecration, the burnt offering, to the Lord, both the morning and evening burnt offerings on it to the Lord. Ezra had to keep meticulous books and he had to study a lot because they're doing everything Right, the morning sacrifice, evening sacrifice, the feast of tabernacle. Remember, it remembered their journey out of the wilderness, and these people have just traveled, like I said, nine hundred miles, and it's at the jeopardy of their own lives. They're back in Jerusalem, remembering that God, who kept their forefathers in the wilderness, has kept them for nine hundred miles. The same God who kept their forefathers has kept them for four to five months. Verse five tells us, afterwards, they offered the regular burnt offering and those for new moons and for all the appointed feasts of the Lord that were consecrated and those of everyone who willingly offered a freewill offering to the Lord. Verse six, from the first day of the seventh month, they began to offer burnt offerings to the Lord. Although the foundation of the temple of the Lord had not been laid. So the altar is wide open. People are watching and listening and hearing all this. Verse seven says, they also gave money to the masons and the carpenters and food, drink, and oil to the people of Sidon and Tyre to bring cedar logs from Lebanon to the Sea of Joppa according to the permission which they had from Cyrus, king of Persia. You know, it's God who moves on a heart, and that's what he's doing with Cyrus. Cyrus is hand over feet helping the Israelites. 
Cyrus knows enough. He knows his history that David had received the timber from Hiram when he was building a temple. And now under the, the decree of Cyrus, they're bringing the wood again. These huge cedars from Lebanon, huge cedars. They said about 70 feet high, floating them down the Mediterranean Sea to the port there in Joppa, where they're taken overland to rebuild the temple and the masons are there. Verse eight, now in the second month of the second year of their coming to the house of God at Jerusalem, Zerubbabel, the son of Shittiel, Shezua, the son of Josadak, and the rest of their brethren, the priests and the Levites, and all those who had come out of the captivity to Jerusalem began work and appointed the Levites from 20 years old. Now, if you know anything about the book of Numbers, that's the right age they should have did 20. You start working. But I don't know if they, all the young people stayed back in Babylon because they grabbed the 30. They, they, they had to count it 32 years and put them to work. I'm sure God didn't mind. And above, and above to oversee the work of the house of the Lord. It's the second month, the exact same time, same time it was when 1 Kings chapter 6, when Solomon was building his temple. And here they are, reconstruction of the temple. And it's not by happenstance. It's not by luck. God knows the number of days when his hand is going to move on anything in our lives. They're coming back to restoration. They have been away for 70 years. You would think most of them, if not all of them, which is true, had forgot about the Lord. Uh, you know, I love the Lord, but I'm not going to make this journey. I'll continue to be lukewarm and serve him if they even served him at all. And like I said, the first thing they come back to, they build, is the altar. That's where we do business at the cross of Jesus Christ. We need to just sit there sometimes and remember what it took Jesus to purchase us, how sufficient it was also. The day he saved us, he knew our failings, our backslidings, he wasn't surprised at those things. We were, we were surprised. We thought we would never backslide or do anything, but God knew from the beginning, and he still redeemed us. He still loves us. He still cares for us. He just wants us to walk with him. He knew it, and he saved us, and he's not surprised. The first thing is back to the altar. The second thing is back to the house of God. That's the next step in their restoration. What needs to be restored is what's been with the individual and Jesus Christ. Then the second step in restoration is back to the house of God, back to the community. It's such, I don't think we understand the, the benefits we get from the community here of brothers and sisters in Christ that are marching on our way, as the old folks used to sing, to Zion, marching to heaven. Even for the backslider, when he comes back, he falls right in line. There's a cost. We realize all over again, that's why we love Christ, because he forgives us. And when he says he forgives us, he means it. That cost is renewed in our mind, the blood of Jesus. Then we come back to the church. 
the assembly, the family, it's never to be taken for granted. God's son had to die on the cross for this fraternity. Or let me say sorority too. I want the women to be a part of it. Sorority too. So that we could be members of his assembly. And the next thing that happens, we see them back to the house again. Work is being done. Verse 9 tells us, Then Jeshua with his sons and brothers, Cadmiel with his sons and the sons of Judah, arose as one to oversee those working on the house of God. The sons of Henadad with their sons and their brethren, the Levites. Verse 10, when the builders laid the foundation of the temple of the Lord, the priests stood in their apparel with trumpets, and the Levites, the sons of Asaph, with cymbals to praise the Lord according to the ordinance of David, king of Israel. There was a specific way that David had gotten, received from the Lord. This is how they're supposed to sing. This is the songs they're supposed to sing. And David said, the Lord showed him a pattern of all of this. God is a God of order. Now, this is in the spring of 536 B.C., exactly 70 years after 605 B.C., when Nebuchadnezzar began to carry the Israelites away. Verse 11 tells us, and they sang responsively. I miss that in the Baptist church, singing those two or three songs. Everybody sings responsive singing, praising and giving thanks to the Lord. Why? Because God is good. Never let that enter out of your mind, come out of your mind. God is good. The first thing he wanted the singers to proclaim because he knows how this world can beat you up and beat you down. And we, we, we're quick to turn, oh, I don't know if God is so good or not. My family's not doing well. My kids aren't doing well. God says, no, this is a song I want you to sing, for he is good. And then he says, for his mercies endure forever towards Israel. And they're under an old covenant. How much more the new covenant we are under. These singers have never, they, they will never, at this time, they had never fulfilled their uh, journey of being priest. I don't know how old some of them are. They, I'm sure some young ones there that will get to be priest. Ezra was supposed to be a priest. He never was. He turned into a prophet. But my point is, They've missed out. Why should I serve the Lord? I'm not a priest anymore. I've been in, locked up for 70 years. I can't even serve in the tabernacle anymore. Why should I serve the Lord? And the first thing God wants them to remember, he's good and his mercies endure forever toward Israel. Then all the people shouted with a great shout when they praised the Lord because the foundation of the house of the Lord was laid. Verse 12, but many of the priests and Levites and heads of the father's houses, old men who had seen the first temple, they should have never seen the first temple. That's how old people do, some of y'all. <laughs> Since the old men had seen that first temple and how magnificent it were, it says they wept with a loud voice when the foundation of this temple was laid before their eyes. Yet many shouted aloud for joy. These people, they were overwhelmed with emotions. 
Haggai will say, in the seventh month of the 21st of the month, the word of the Lord came by Haggai the prophet, uh, chapter 2, verses 1 through 9, saying, Speak now to Zerubbabel, the son of Sheetiel, governor of Judah, and to Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and to the remnant of the people, saying, Who is left among you who saw this temple in its former glory? And how do you see it now? God is asking them in comparisons with it. This is not in your eyes as nothing. Yet now be strong, Zerubbabel, because he's hearing it all, says the Lord. And be strong, Joshua, son of Jehozadak, the high priest. And be strong, all of you people of the land, says the Lord. And work, for I am with you. That's what makes things all right. God, when we're working in his vineyard, he's not just sitting back chilling like I would be if I was the boss. He's right there working. He's working. Says the Lord of hosts, according to the word, I covenant with you. And he reminds them they're in a covenant. When you came out of Egypt, so my spirit remains among you. Do not fear. So they must be fearing. For thus says the Lord of hosts, once more, it is a little while, I will shake heaven and earth, the sea and dry land, and I will shake all nations, and they shall come to desire of all nations, and I will fill this temple with glory. So don't think it's little, says the Lord of hosts. And then he says, the silver is mine, and the gold is mine, says the Lord of hosts. They tell me on the... Dome of the rock, that temple is gold. And right next to it, they say it's another little building made with silver the top. And God is saying, all of that is mine. While y'all are arguing over it, it's really mine. The glory of this latter temple, the ones they were crying about, the old men, shall be greater than the former, says the Lord of, of hosts. And that's the way the Lord works. Every time we think we've did something well, a lot of people come and you did well all those things. You begin, oh, man, this will never happen again. It reminds me of the VBS. We had a great deal of people, and I'm excited about what the Lord is going to do at this VBS. Because the Lord, he doesn't want us looking back at what it used to be like. He has greater things in store for us. And in this place, he says, I will give peace, says the Lord of hosts. So Haggai speaking to them, and I'm sure some cried because of the emotion, emotional behavior, and then some cried because they saw somebody else crying and somebody else crying, so they just started crying, and that's not, that's not good to do. But the temple is being rebuilt, and with great emotions, they had never seen the former house before, and it was a dream of theirs. The foundation is being laid and they're shouting for joy. Verse 10 says, when the, when the builders laid the foundation of the temple of the Lord, the priests stood in their apparel. They had carried that 900 miles dirty. They had to wash it. They had to clean it. They had to make sure it was right. They're all sharp. Their apparel with trumpets and the Levites, the sons of Asaph, with symbols to praise the Lord according to the ordinance of David, king of Israel. And they sang responsively, praising and giving thanks to the Lord. 
for his mercy endures forever toward Israel. For he is good. Then all the people shouted with a great shout when they praised the Lord because the foundation of the house of the Lord was laid. But many of the priests and Levites and heads of the father's houses, old men who had seen the first temple, wept with a loud voice when the foundation of this temple was laid before their eyes. Yet many shouted aloud for joy. Verse 13, back. So that the people could not discern the noise of the shout of joy from the noise of the weeping of the people. For the people shouted with a loud shout, and the sound was heard afar off. So they are waking up all these enemies. So the people surrounding the temple, the locals, the Canaanites, the Samaritans, all that was in the area, as they were shouting for joy, you've got around 40,000 people screaming In chapter 4, there's no chapter break. It it, it continues. It says in verse 1, Now when the adversaries of Judah and Benjamin heard that the descendants of the captivity were building the temple of the Lord, the God of Israel, Ezra, he doesn't delineate between, uh, he doesn't record all the events between 536 B.C., when we saw the temple started, at this point, it's 515. So it's been 21 years, it seems, at this point in the temple. They've been refurbishing it. They've been reconstructing it, laying the foundation. All that, the Hebrew word for, for foundation is the same for refurbishing or, or reconstructing. But it all has the same idea of laying the same foundation or refurbishing, or rebuilding. It's been 21 years by this time. The time has gone by. No doubt the people of the land, when they heard the shout, when they heard all that stuff going on, they began to watch. And now the temple, by and large, has been reconstructed. And this is what you can expect. Whenever you have backslidden and you come back to the Lord, He's willing, he's happy, he's excited, you're coming back. He's proud and he's blessed of that. But you know how people are when you come back to church and you haven't, they haven't seen you for a while and, 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 and they've been hearing rumors, why, why ain't Pastor Victor here? Oh, I heard this and I heard that. You've got to fight all of that because God has called you back. And he's the only one that matters. You're worth something to him. You know, as I was thinking about that, that's the part of a prodigal or of a backslider. That's the entire problem. It's when you finally have had enough and you come to your senses and you come and say, Lord, I repent. I want to walk with you. You you died on the cross for me. You rose again for me. You give me the strength to live, and I thank you, and I love you for that, and I've come back to you. God is there with wide open arms. He's always been because he's in a covenant relationship with you. But this is the problem for the prodigal or the backslider. He has to fight all of the talk of Satan, and he has to fight all of the messy hears in his mind. And then when the people come and they say, what are you doing here? 
You shouldn't even be here. We don't want you here working on the house of the Lord anymore. We don't want you serving. We don't want you doing all these things anymore. You have to fight all of that. And God has forgiven you. And God is saying, I'm right here. But that's the problem with backsliding. You have to fight all that stuff to get back. God hasn't changed. I remember Pastor Mark says, uh, an old man was driving in a truck with his wife, and they always sat side by side. And and after 15, 20 years, the woman was sitting close to the uh, passenger door, and she asked her husband, why don't we sit side by side anymore? And he says, who moved? That's what Jesus says. He's faithful. He never moves. We move. And to get back, it's so much garbage from the enemy and your own self and, and the condemnation that comes. And then when your good friends at church piles on you, oh, that makes it hard. That's the battle of coming back. God has forgiven you. God has separated your sins as far as the east from the west. God knew when you gave your life to him. He knows the end from the beginning. You were going to trip up here and there. You didn't know because you thought you'd never do that. But God knew, and he still welcomes you back. That's the kind of God we serve. And that's what the book of Ezra is speaking on. Chapter 4, verse 1, it says, Now when the adversaries, because enemies are never going to leave you alone, you're back. You've got guts. You've defeated all of that, and you're coming back. You've heard from the Lord. He hasn't moved. He knew your downfalls when he saved you. That's mind-blowing. Chuck Smith used to say, he's not surprised. He, he, doesn't, he doesn't pick lemons. That's all he picks. That's all he picks. He knows none of us are, are correct and will be correct. But will you come back? Will you come back? So these uh, guys of Judah and Benjamin, the descendants, they're back and they're building. They've raised up the foundation. And I want you to listen to this because I don't want you being confused. Ezra here doesn't delineate. He doesn't record all of the events between 536 when we saw the temple started at this point. At this point now is 515. It's been 21 years It seems at this point the temple has been refurbished, or you can say it's been reconstructed. The foundation has been laid. 21 years have gone by. No doubt the people of the land by this time, they know they are there. They're seeing the smoke every day. They're smelling the the meat every day. They know something's going on. They've gained interest, and they started watching. And now the temple, by and large, has been reconstructed. And this is what you can expect when you, if you ever backslide and you come back to church in the process of restoration. You know you need to come back. God is calling you to come back. And you start with the altar. That's the first thing they built after they had traveled 900 miles. They build the altar to the house of the Lord, just the church. You think because you've got the leading of God People would be exciting for you come back, but it's never like that. And we're going to see it right here. Verse 1 says, now when the adversaries, and that's all of your friends, that when you come back, they grab you and tell you they love you, and they're talking about you behind your back. 
all of the adversaries. That's what makes it so hard. You've got some nerve coming back to church. I heard what you've done. And I'm, and I, and, and I'm reminded of Paul says, you have acted worse than the unbelievers, and you've got the audacity to come back to church? We're too holy for you. You need to find you another church as if we've never sinned. And so you have to fight all of this. Here comes the adversaries. And he says in Job, and let, I want to say something about spiritual warfare. In my book, Spiritual Warfare, I know it's real, but Job tells us, I don't need, he's not, I don't think Job will never, uh, the enemy will never scrutinize me. Maybe a buck private, that's all it needs to handle me, but not Satan himself, that's what I'm saying. He's messing with world leaders and all those people. That's where he comes from. It says this in Job 2.2, 2, and the Lord said to Satan, from where do you come? So Satan answered the Lord and said, from going to and fro on the earth and from walking back and forth on it. He can only be at one place at one time. And I don't think he's here with me. Maybe a buck private demon might be beside me, but it ain't Satan. Believe that. And he says, you've been scrutinizing my servant Job. You've been looking at him. You've been watching him. You know the chinks in his armor, and that's the way Satan works. And then he comes at you. Lucifer, no doubt about it, he's a bad boy. He's the prince of the principalities of the world. He's the cherub that fell. He's all those things. He's the dragon. And by myself, by myself, you or me or anyone else could never defeat him. But my dad is stronger than his dad. My dad can beat his dad, and that's the way it goes. So as long as I'm walking in line with the Lord, I've got his protection. And that's what we have to remember here. And that's what these uh, guys are going to go up with. That's why they built the altar first. You're going to start hearing all these people, all of these enemies begin to come, and they're going to say, I want to help. We want to help build, trying to get in, to make a little chink in the armor. But it, no, it doesn't work like that because God is watching over them. It says, now when the adversaries of Judah and Benjamin heard that the descendants of the captivity were building the temple of the Lord, Lord God of Israel, they came to Zerubbabel and the heads of the father's houses, and said to them, let us build with you. And I know that was very tempting because they probably wanted to finish it. For we seek your God as you do, and we have sacrificed to him. I don't know who they've been sacrificing to, but they haven't been sacrificing to Yahweh since the days of Ezra Shardon, king of Assyria, who brought us here. I'm going to stop right there tonight so you guys remember chapter, verse 2 Chapter 4, God loves his people. And there's forgiveness at the cross. His arms are wide open. But we have to ask for forgiveness and, and begin to walk with the Lord and get restored. His grace is sufficient. His blood is all-powerful. 
and he will welcome you back since he knew the end from the beginning anyway. Let's pray. Father, you are an amazing God. The Godhead is amazing. Jesus Christ is amazing. The Holy Spirit is amazing. It's amazing that God himself would indwell these vessels. Lord, let us look back at Calvary and see what you went through and and be committed to you more and more each and every day. May we be all that you've called us to be, Lord. May we not be snobs that we're better. We we never backslid and we've never been a prodigal and think we're better. No. You chose us and you knew those things were going to happen. So let not the enemy come in with all his condemnation. Condemnation is of the enemy. Anyway, if you want to know the love of Christ, look at the cross of Calvary and the one who hung on it so that you would come back. And his and his ways are forgive, forgiving. So, Lord, I just want to pray for Calvary Chapel. I want to pray for those that are hurting, those that are sick, those that might be having a hard time just reading your word and, and following you, Lord. I pray for an extra amount of grace for them, that they would continue to seek your face. And we ask all of these things through Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior, to the Father God. Amen.